Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Before we get to this week's program, I hope you noticed that last Friday, the day after Michael Snow passed away, we pushed a representation of my 2014 conversation with Snow into the Man podcast feed. The show was taped on the occasion of a survey of Snow's photography at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. It was a wonderful conversation, and I hope it provides a certain entree to thinking about Snow's enormous impact on art. This week, Vittori Carpaccio. The National Gallery of Art in Washington is presenting Vittore Carpaccio, Master Storyteller of Renaissance Venice. It's up through February 12th. The exhibition was curated by Peter Humphrey in collaboration with Andrea Belliani and my guest, Gretchen Hirschauer. The show presents Carpaccio, a Venetian master who worked in the period between Bellini and the rise of Tintoretto, as the producer of spectacular narrative pictures that brought storytelling more fully into the practice of Venetian painters. The exhibition includes 45 paintings and 30 drawings. The National Gallery and Yale University Press co-published an excellent catalog. It's available from IndieBound and Amazon for about $50 to $65. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, East of the Pacific, Making Histories, New Histories, of Asian American Art at Stanford University's Cantor Arts Center. Gretchen Hirschauer on Vittori Carpaccio, after the break. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents Beyond the Surface, collage, mixed media, and textile works from the collection. Beyond the Surface explores how artists bring together disparate materials and ideas to create artworks that engage with all audiences. Since opening in 2005, the Nasher Museum has been dedicated to building a groundbreaking collection of contemporary art centered on diversity and inclusion. The museum's emphasis is on artists historically underrepresented, overlooked, or excluded from art institutions, with a particular focus on artists of African descent. In this effort, the museum supports global artists of extraordinary vision, whose works spark opportunities for thoughtful engagement. On view through February 19, 2023, at the Getty Center in Los Angeles, the captivating new photography exhibition Udabarth Peripheral Vision investigates the act of looking. In her multi-part works, Barth explores the impermanent qualities of light, as well as its ability to affect optical perception using techniques like intentionally blurring images and capturing the way light travels across a room throughout the day. The exhibition traces Barth's 40-year career, from her early experimentations as a student to later studies of the eye's capabilities and the camera's role in helping an artist translate visual information into a photograph. Her most recent work is displayed here for the first time, a project commissioned in celebration of the Getty Center's 20th anniversary. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. California artist Alexis Smith is widely known for working in collage, layering quotes from film and literature with movie posters, album covers, advertisements, and newspapers. She highlights the narratives embedded in our culture, asking us to think critically about how they inform our sense of self and our society. Now, through February 2022, Immerse yourself in Smith's collection of images and objects, the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego La Jolla campus. From intimate artists' books to room-sized installations, visitors will witness film, literature, pop culture, and Hollywood reinvented. Plan your visit to the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego by going to mcasd.org.
And we're back. Gretchen Hirschauer, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Could you position Vittore Carpaccio in space and time for us? So we know he was a Venetian painter, but who were his peers and what was the space and time in which he was working and the space and time he was presenting often? Carpaccio, as you said, worked in Venice at the end of the 15th century and at the beginning of the 16th century. We don't really know a lot about his origins. We don't know, for example, when he was born. We don't know when he died. We don't know exactly who he would have been working with and who were his uh, colleague and, and cohort. But just by looking at his works of art, he must have been working in the workshop of the Bellini. Giovanni Bellini is the best known of the three. His father was Jacopo and his brother was Gentile. And they actually have these large narrative cycle paintings, just like Carpaccio does. So we just surmise, really, that he must have learned in that studio, but we don't really know for sure. And we also don't know exactly what he might have been doing early in his career, because his earliest paintings that we know of are generally dated in the 1490s. And let's just say he was born at the latest in 1465. That means he would have already been 25 years old. So he must have been working in a studio. There must be other things out there that we could point to, but we honestly don't know. But I would say his you know, compatriots are certainly the, the Bellini studio, uh, Giorgione, the younger Giorgione, Titian was a young man in the like 1518, the date of the Ferrari picture. So that very, very august company in Venice at the turn of the century of the 15th to 16th century. Kind of at the moment of Venice's full maturation as a painting hub. And he's there for it and contributing to it. Speaking of Bellini and the Bellini, the exhibition starts with a Mary and child that was recently conserved. As part of that conservation process, a signature revealed the painting as by Carpaccio, who would have been about 23 in, in the late 1480s. How was that picture important in kind of revealing or maybe even confirming the, the link to Bellini or the Bellini? It's actually kind of curious because there are parts of it that do remind you of Bellini, you know, the yeah. attitude of, of the Virgin, the Virgin in prayer, adoring the child. But then there's other elements that come to play too. Uh, for example, she's not dressed as the usual Madonna. She's dressed as a fashionable or regular Venetian mother would have been. But you can see Bellini coming through all of that. You can see Bellini coming through the differences in the paintings by the attitude. Bellini was, of course, the main proponent of the Madonna and child image in, in Venice at this time. So whatever Carpaccio would have done, however he would have changed it, he certainly had to have been looking at Bellini. There are some early religious paintings in the exhibition and some later ones too, but it's not these early religious paintings that make Carpaccio a significant painter. He comes into his full majority as a result of his narrative painting, which I think we've both mentioned once or twice. Yep. And these are pictures that are full of story, funny details, recognizable people and places, flora and buildings. 
and strikingly entertaining interactions between people. (laughs) (laughs) So before we get into some of the specific cycles that he painted, let's talk a little bit about where these pictures would have come from. We've mentioned the Bellini as cycle painters, big narrative painters. How else would Carpaccio have known the form and from what other sources would he have migrated ideas and pictorial tropes into his own work? As far as ideas, uh, and it's a question that I get asked quite a lot, is how did Bellini know what Jerusalem would have looked like or what the architecture would have in the Middle East looked like? What did a mosque look like? And we assume, we know that he didn't travel. He may have never even left Venice. So he didn't have the opportunity to see some of these motifs. But what he did have were pattern books and engravings and drawings by other artists. And it was very common at the time. There are some very famous what we call pattern books or sort of not tourist books, but, you know, views of Jerusalem or whatever. I mean, that's not the proper title. And surely he must have seen seen these. I mean, there's no way he could have painted some of the things he did and make it up from his imagination because a lot of it is is very close to what you would actually see. And you have to remember at this time that Venice is a crossroads of East, East and West. There are cultures from the Holy Land. There are you know Muslim Ottomans from Egypt. There, there's all sorts of people from the known world at that moment. And it was a very diverse culture, a diverse society. And so he would have seen some of these characters and people in these exotic clothes, but he also could have seen pattern books and drawings and engravings by other artists. Carpaccio's work, including in these cycle pictures, his work is rich with flora, rich with trees and plants, and lots of other things that don't grow in canals. (laughs) (laughs) Where would he have both understood the benefit of portraying the natural world and maybe also learned about the flora he would depict? And before I get out of the way, let me note that one of the things I really enjoy about Carpaccio's pictures is how when he paints trees, he's painting individual and specific tree species, unlike maybe other painters of, say, the 15th century? I think certainly he would have seen some of these works, some of these flora fauna in the works of other other artists. For example, mm. Albrecht Dürer was in Venice between 1506 and 1507, the second time he was there. And as, as you know, he depicts many, many different types of plants and animals. Another artist that Carpaccio looked at was Pisanello, one of the dogs portrayed in The Young Knight, is a direct quotation from a, a drawing by Pisanello. You know, some of the flowers, some of the animals, you know, where did he see an ermine? Where did he see a weasel? Where did he see these odd dogs? You know, I'm really not sure, but it's most likely in the drawings of other artists, people like Dur, like Pisanello, who was known to have depicted many, many different animals. As I read through the catalog for this show or taping before I've seen it, boy, did I think of Durer a lot, a whole lot. Mm -hmm. So Carpaccio's first very major commission in work, if you will, is a nine painting group of works called The Life of St. Ursula. Ursula was a fourth century princess and martyr from Britain 
who had an unusually pan-European life that included all manner of mythologized details that were kind of tailor-made for a young painter eager to stretch a bit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So what is the story that plays out across the cycle, and how do we see Carpaccio really becoming a painter in full here? Well, my favorite painting of that cycle is when the young king of Brittany goes to Ursula's father and asks for her hand in marriage. And the father isn't so sure that he wants to do this. He wants to give his daughter to this foreigner. But she enumerates in her bedroom, she's talking to him and is enumerating, counting on her fingers, the reasons why this is a good idea. And Carpaccio just takes these stories that could be very simple and just runs with them. You know, the the fact that he's got Ursula in in her bedroom in a little separate scene and, and counting off the reasons to her father why they should get married. I mean, it just, I think it has a lot to do with Carpaccio's innate sense of storytelling. I mean, he just has the capacity and the imagination to go above and beyond what most artists would have done, I think, with some of these stories. And uh, you you just see that everywhere. You could get lost in the details of these pictures. I've seen most of these pictures before, and I've seen things just in the last few weeks that I never saw before, that I never noticed, because I wasn't in close enough to them. So, and the story of St. Ursula is that, you know, she... She's a, a Breton princess, and she's the king of, I think, is it England? Asked for her hand in marriage, and she wants to go and does go, but it all ends rather badly as she is martyred at the end of the at the end of the cycle. But I guess that's what made her so interesting is that she was a martyr. Some of the ways Carpaccio tells the story is in interactions between people, but he also, across the cycle, establishes himself as a significant architectural painter. I mean, the buildings and rooms within buildings in this cycle are bravura. He uses plants to suggest elements of stories and trees to suggest elements of stories. So the cycle, none of the paintings from the cycle are in the exhibition there at Academia in Venice. Mm -hmm. But the cycle is represented in the exhibition by a suite of drawings. Do you have a favorite from among those drawings? The one that I particularly like is, I think it's from the British, oh, it's from Oxford. It's from England. And it's a double-sided drawing of two, the heads of two young women. One is in profile. The other is sort of in a three-quarter view. And that just shows you that he is every bit as good a draftsman is he is a painter. You know, often, I shouldn't say often, but sometimes painters are great painters, but they can't draw. And the other way around, sometimes they draw very well, but they don't paint so well. So it's, I think, a little bit extraordinary when you actually see a painter who you can't decide, is he a better painter or is he a better draftsman? But certainly Carpaccio you know, he's skilled at both and not just skilled, but he's exceptional at both. So, and I think it's in particular, he does very detailed studies of the heads of many of the people that are to be seen in his paintings. Um, you know, just even bystanders, he's had specific drawings made or makes specific drawings 
of the bystanders. So, you know, you do have a sense that these really are people, that these are not just made up elements from the crowd, but that these are actual living people in Venice or people he would have seen in Venice. The verso of that drawing, which Mm -hmm. is at the Ashmolean, features the head of four women. And what's really fascinating about the drawing, at least to me, is that their heads are all at slightly different angles and their eyes are looking in slightly different ways. And it's Mm -hmm. almost like Carpaccio is seeing, testing out, oh, if I I change the angle of the head 10 degrees this way, what, what does that say? If she's looking here or there, what can I communicate with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty. He's great. looking at the same face, the same, the same head. But as you said, imagining it, how would it look if I turned it a little bit this way, or if she looks down, or uh, he's not content with just one image, one version to to look at. You know, he wants to try out as many things as he possibly can before he puts it to paint. Yeah, you really do kind of feel like it's it's research playing out on paper. It's a lot of fun. Peter Humphrey, in his catalog essay, notes that Carpaccio, in the very same years he's telling the St. Ursula story, migrates the same anecdotal, almost narrative approach to his pictures of, of the great hits of Catholic painting, such as Holy Family pictures, mm-hmm. such as one in the show presenting Mary, Jesus, and John the Baptist. Was that unusual for the place and time? Is he finding a way to animate, you know, the standards in an unusual particular? I would have to agree. Yes, I think he certainly is. You know, he you don't really find other artists at this time doing this. You know, they tend to reuse certain motifs. And like the Bellini example I gave you, you know, the, the Madonna is very, she's very static, but she's very somber. And with Carpaccio, you you get a, a almost cinematic sense of it. You get the fact that they're even in a simple Madonna and child, there's a story going on. There's something else to be told other than just this simple visual image. And he, you know, he's great at that. I mean, he's especially adept at that in his narrative cycles, but he can also do that in just your everyday shall I say, standard religious scene, like, as you said, in the Adoration of the Magi. There is a virgin and child with a young St. John the Baptist in the show, which features Jesus reading, the baby Jesus reading a book sitting in a window. And books in in Holy Family or Mary and Jesus paintings, I think, first come in in, in the north of Europe, and uh-huh. they make their way into the south of Europe. And often... Mary is holding a book, presumably a Bible, and Jesus is trying to get at it to read <laughs> the story to see what's to see what's coming. Right. And in this Carpaccio, which I think comes from Frankfurt, the detail that gets me is that the baby or the, the child Jesus, if you will, is reading the book and the page he's turning is curved as if he's actively in the exact moment of turning to a key point in the story. Um, and just as he's doing this, Mary is praying because she knows what's coming. She knows what's, yes, she knows what's what's next or not what's next, but what's in the future of his life. That's a, an amazing detail that, you know, you really have to look deeply to see that, that it's not just that he's turning the pages, but he's turning it to a particular page 
or a particular section. Sometimes these were book of hours, they were prayer books, they not necessarily were always Bibles, but they could be very different different types of books. Obviously, with, with the scene of Mary and, and Jesus, it would have, wouldn't be a secular book, but it would certainly be a, a Bible, as you said, or, or a book of hours. And one of the things I do like about that painting in particular is that it's not just a simple Madonna and child that you might pray to. You know, you might have this Madonna and child in your bedroom and you would say your your nightly prayers in front of uh, the Madonna and, and sort of meditate on on what's happening. But these could also be used as an, something instructional. You're teaching your children not necessarily how to read, but you're showing them you know, how they can learn to read. You could show them this is the proper way a little Venetian boy would uh, behave. So they're not static. It, again, they do. Are, they are telling a story. They just aren't a static image. And he's also wearing clothing. I mean, usually in a Madonna and child, the child is in some sort of white shift or white loose diaphanous dress. But in Carpaccio, they're wearing elegant Venetian clothes. Uh, in that picture, he's he has on a coral necklace and he wears a coral bl- bracelet. His shoes are little Venetian shoes. He's not barefoot. They are amazing. Yeah. They're late. They're, they're bright red. They're yes. laced booties. They are yes. spectacular. They are. <laughs> yeah. And even his little cap. You know, there's supposedly pearls. I mean, he's painted the pearls on his his little cap. You don't see that in your standard uh, Madonna and child painting. No, and the cap might be the most detailed thing in the whole painting. It's something else. We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com, of course. The first big moment the exhibition builds to, you know, it comes in the third gallery of the show, and it features two paintings from a cycle that Carpaccio painted after the Ursula cycle, a cycle he painted in response to a commission from a hall where members of the Dalmatian community in Venice hung out. And you have two two of the, I think, six pictures in that cycle in the show, and they're spectacular. What is the cycle, and what is that moment you and your colleagues build toward? This is the, the narrative cycle painted for the uh, Scuola del di San Giorgio, and it's the, the Scuola of the Dalmatians, or the as they say, the Schiavoni, the Slavs in Venice. And it's interesting, it's one of the rare meeting houses that is still intact. You can actually see these fantastic paintings in the Scuola, which is quite a rare a rare thing. But these confraternities, as they were called, performed really valuable services. They took a lot off of the Venetian government, actually, by they, they were charitable and social organizations. They would feed the sick, they would bury the dead, they would, if they had the money, they would provide dowries for girls who maybe didn't have have the money for a a necessary dowry. So they were organizations that were really crucial to Venice at the time. And this one is dedicated to the the lives of St. Jerome, St. George, and a saint we don't know much about, Trifone or Trifon in English. And so there are a number of these narratives that 
we could have had here. They are just all, each one is more fantastic than the other. But the two that we have here, one is the St. Augustine in a study, and the second is St. George and the Dragon. I think they are among Carpaccio's greatest paintings and certainly among his greatest narrative cycles. And you might think, well, why, why is St. Augustine in a cycle devoted to uh, St. Jerome? And that is because, and is as is depicted, at the very moment of Jerome's death, Augustine is in his study, you know, hundreds of miles away. He's in fact writing a letter to his, his I won't say his friend, but his colleague, St. Jerome, when outside of the window is this great flash of light that mesmerizes Augustine and even the little dog sitting sitting in the room with him. <laughs> and it's, it's the announcement of Jerome's death. And it is the most luminous picture. It's just exquisite and unbelievable how he captures this sense of light, not just light, but like this real flash. You can almost see like a lightning strike coming coming through the window. It's so brilliant and brilliantly done. And it is a, a scholar's study or Carpaccio's idea of what a Renaissance scholar's study should be full of all kinds of, you know, writing implements, hourglass, paper, letters, dozens of books, just all sorts of wondrous little objects that you would see in a study at, at the time. One of my favorite things that happens over and over again in Carpaccio's pictures is he makes us laugh. There are these moments of of lightness and mirth and whimsy. Is there one or two of those in this St. Augustine painting? Yes. I mean, of course, everyone loves the the little white dog. But to me, in a very specific and detailed painting where you know each object that he painted, he painted from life. It was real. But high on the wall in both sides of the study are these sconces that look like they're made out of abominable snowmen arms or Yeti arms. They're these <laughs> furry arms that are outstretched up to the elbow holding onto a sconce. And I can't even figure out what that is. I mean, we've had all these discussions about it. It's just hysterical. It's wonderful that he would include that in a painting that was so detailed and so specific. It's as if he's trying to say to us, you know, I'll show you, I can be, I can be whimsical and, and silly at the same time. So I love that detail. I, I would like to have a sconce like that myself. So. <laughs> other, other paintings feature people in the crowds in the pictures making faces at each other and whatnot. But the great contrast here is that everything in the St. Augustine picture is absolutely nailed down. Right. Everything is 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 what it is and it's in its place. And then these two kind of bracketing sconces are are above it all, like literally above it all. They are above it all. I mean, even in the you know, the far left background, you have this little closet with the round lectern and books and you know, navigational tools that you know exactly what they are when you look at them. There's no question as to what he's painting. And then you look at these crazy sconces and just think what was he doing, you know, and it's fun. It's great fun. It's an amazing picture. Just as Carpaccio's outdoor scenes are full of details, flora, rabbits, 
everything. So to Augustine's study, do you know what Carpaccio is painted facing the viewer in the lower right-hand corner of the picture? It looks like a piece of paper and a book, both intended to be, you know, read by, by us. Those two pieces of paper are evidently examples of one sacred music and the other profane music. They haven't been specifically identified, but they have been identified as something appropriate to the time. That is, you know, early 16th century music. And evidently it has been played. People have have played it, but no one has so far has seemed to identify the music. And I think, interestingly, it's not just sacred music, but it's also profane, you know, everyday, well, everyday music, if you will. And you do wonder, especially the one right up against the picture plane, what is that trying to tell us? We don't know. I mean, we don't know what the music is, or at least I don't know what the music is exactly. But clearly, it's there right in your face. And one of the the first things you do see in the painting. So he's giving us something for our eyes and something that we can understand is for our ears. Yes, yes. The other great painting from this cycle that is in Washington is, I don't even know how to describe this St. George and the Dragon painting. <laughs> it is it is pre-cinematic. It is right. <laughs> just over the top in the most overest, the toppest way imaginable. I, I guess maybe as a way of, of animating for the listener, and of course we'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com, but as animating for the listener how thorough this painting is, Mm-hmm. What what weird thing in the painting most interests you and why? That's a hard choice to make. Um, <laughs> I absolutely love the dragon, and I am, of course, rooting for the dragon, not St. George. It's his imagination, his idea of what a spiky, almost feathery dragon would look like with this huge curling tail which isn't actually quite anatomically correct. He corrects the tale 10 years later when he repaints another, when he paints another St. George and the Dragon for a church. And you can't help but notice all the body parts strewn about on the, on the ground uh, under St. George and his horse. You know, you have extremely foreshortened heads. You have extremely foreshortened dismembered bodies with all the blood and gore everywhere. As I said, this is a 12-year-old boy's delight to look at this painting because it's got this wonderful dragon. It's got dead bodies. It's got exotic architecture. But my favorite thing, I think, is the horse. And the and St. George, of course, oh. is fantastic because he's got this gleaming, shining armor and long spurs. But I noticed finally once I saw it after it had been cleaned that the horse, his tongue is sticking out. Why is his tongue? Oh, so out? it is. And to me, he's saying, I'm hot, I'm tired, I'm thirsty, let's get this over with. <laughs> and even <laughs> the, the horse's tail, as it would have been, it was wrapped with ribbon. And even the ribbon has come undone. So it's it's that sort of detail that, you know, oh, yeah. it's not necessary to the scene. It, it doesn't tell you a part of the story, but it it just enhances what is there. And, you know, as I said, it's the sort of thing you don't notice right away. But it's very much obvious that this horse has his tongue sticking out. Another of the details that 
I love, and again, it makes me feel sorry for the frog, but you'll see a serpent about to eat a frog. He's got this poor little frog in his mouth. So just interesting things like that, that they just add to the character of the painting. They don't tell you anything more than what you know about the story, but they certainly add a great deal to what you're seeing. And I think they make it very memorable. But I feel sorry for the uh, dragon because the saint has driven his lance through the dragon's mouth, but the lance is partially broken off. So this poor dragon has this broken lance sticking out of his mouth. Uh, It's not just the usual spear to the head that you, you know, you might see or someone like that, but it's very graphic. Uh, yeah, that 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 spear has gone all the way through the dragon's head and poked right. out, and it's poking out, out the, the other, other side. side. Yeah, I am. I am not. I'm. I'm always hesitant to 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 to, to offer things when, when speaking about areas outside my specialties. But there are two parts of this picture that I can't resist celebrating. One of the there, there are a number of desiccated piles of bones on right. on the ground. Mm-hmm. One of them, by virtue of its tail, appears to be like a baby dragon. It has oh. nearly the same tail as the dragon St. George is finishing off. Um, <laughs> really? Which is wildly specific and Is this creepy. the one on, on the right? On the yep. 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 Far right under under the horse's back legs. Um, it's clearly an animal. You're right. It maybe is the baby dragon. And, and it's got the, like. The other animals, the skulls are not just people. They're, oh, no. You know, the majority of them are, are animals. And. There's one skull sort of right in the middle where it has huge eyes. It's almost like it's a primate skull, you know, with these big orbs. Oh, yeah. Eyes, you know. Like huge, like yeah. uh, two-thirds the size of the skull. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I think the, another a, a great detail, rather gory, is the, the dead female right under the exactly. uh, dragon's front feet. And, you know, she's cut in half basically but she still has her dress on partly and that figure seems torn from andrea montagna yes as is the foreshortened male nude next to her that's certainly yeah from montagna's entombment of christ yeah hopefully hopefully we're giving people a a reasonable verbal understanding of the (laughs) spectacularness of this moment to which the first several galleries build. <laughs> it's it's amazing when you go through the show with people who don't know Mantegna and, and several, or sorry, who don't know Carpaccio, several people have noticed that when someone comes around the corner, there's almost a gasp when they see these pictures because they're just so unexpected and so detailed that, you know, it really just takes people's breath away to see these. So at about the same time Carpaccio is painting pictures of extraordinary, in this case, in St. George of the Dragon, extraordinary gore. And in the case of the St. Augustine painting, extraordinary lonerness and, 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 and natural phenomenon playing out. He also paints a six-picture Marian cycle, which the National Gallery is exhibiting in its entirety. It, it's hard to overstate how atmospherically and narratively different and more subtle and more gentle this Marian cycle is. For whom did Carpaccio paint it? And what Uh, are the moments in the cycle to which we should pay particular attention? uh, This cycle was painted for the Albanians. There was a a 
very large Albanian community in Venice. You just have to think just across the Adriatic on the eastern shore where these were the Slavonians and the, the Albanese, and many of them had migrated to Venice. And so in Albania, evidently, there is a particular devotion to the Virgin Mary. So the, the heads of the scuola had asked for the life of the Virgin Mary to be depicted, not the life of Christ or not the life of a particular saint, but the life of the Virgin Mary. And the first one, I think, is just full of wonderful detail. And the more you look, the more you see. This would be the birth of the Virgin, where you have the Virgin Mary has just been born. Her elderly mother, Anna, is sort of sitting up on one elbow in the bed. And there are maidservants in the room. One is probably washing diapers. One is probably rolling up swaddling rolls of of, of fabric. And then uh, the elderly fathers looking on to the far left. And then you see these two little rabbits right in the middle of the room. And rabbits, of course, are often a symbol of fertility. And Anna, of course, being an elder, elderly woman or older woman, this was a miraculous birth for her as well. But it gives you a real sense of what a Venetian house would have looked like with the various views of through one room and into the kitchen and so on. There's also a plaque near the bed, which is a Hebrew script. It evidently is real Hebrew. Often you'll see the Hebrew script and it's just fake. It's not, you know, it's Carpaccio's idea of a Hebrew inscription, but this one is evidently a real script. And I've, if I'm remembering correctly, I think it's a premonition of, of the Christ child. That's a great one. I, you know, the the next in the cycle, the presentation of the Virgin is the story of when she was three years old. Her parents took her to the temple in Jerusalem and she was to be raised at the temple until she was ready to be married. And and the story is is that this little three-year-old girl, Mary, walked up the steps of the temple unaided and into the care of the high priest who's dressed in very luxurious clothing, standing on these beautiful marble steps. And you also see there, there's a creature that looks sort of like a deer or, I don't know, almost a llama. And then a little boy who's talking to another high priest. And and that's the sort of detail that you think, why is why is this here? And why did he include this? I Again, I think he included it because he loves such detail, but I think it's also sort of a symbol of the instruction of the high priest to the little boy and, you know, the coming of, of Christianity, I guess, mm. if you will. So, and, you know, there's many scenes, many, many scenes. The one scene of the Annunciation has an inscription at the bottom, and it's something to, something like in the time of Nicolo Zimador in the in the month of April, and it's a Zimador is a sheep shearer, so that's suggesting that the person who paid for it was a sheep shearer. Well, that's probably not likely. You know, it may have been a a wealthy wool merchant who wanted to seem more humble than he really was. So things like that that you know really they draw your eye. I think. I mean, every one of these 
every one of these paintings in the cycle has something to talk about. You know, in the betrothal of betrothal of the Virgin, it's the story of how when she was ready to be married, the eligible bachelors, the suitors, were told to come to the temple with a plain stick. And there's a crowd in the background, and they're all holding up and shaking their sticks. And up comes Joseph, who's an, clearly an older man, and his stick has burst into bloom. And to the high priest, that means that he is the one chosen by God. And then, of course, you see way up in the far right, you see God or God's emissary come flying down to you know, give the word to the high priest that this is Joseph, and he is the one who should be Mary's husband. And, and on top of all that, each of these pictures features extraordinary architectural elements. So in, in, in the paintings we've discussed so far, we've had landscape, we've had narrative, mm-hmm. we've had gore, <laughs> <laughs> we've had moments of, of interaction between people that, 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 that Carpaccio is doing as well as any Venetian painter I can think of before him or better. One thing that we don't have a, a good understanding of across Carpaccio's oeuvre is his engagement with portraiture. I think a couple of the catalog essays note that we know he did it, but we don't have many examples. There is, however, one key Carpaccio portrait in the exhibition. It's of an early 16th century doge, Mm -hmm. doge being the Venetian head of state, of course. What about this picture leaves us, you know, is, is striking enough to make us wonder more about what Carpaccio did accomplish in portraiture across his career? To me, the one thing that stands out in this painting is the amazing fabric, the texture. Mm. He has this gold and orange brocade cloak on, and he wears a gold and orange corno, which is the Venetian, which is the doge's hat, which has a very specific profile. It's like a horned cap. And when you look at this brocade, you, you it's so sumptuous and so beautiful. You think he had to have something like this in front of him. We don't know if he did, you know, perhaps he, he, I'm sure he was able to see some of these fantastic fabrics, but it's, it's funny because it's almost like it's a portrait of the brocade. It's not necessarily, I don't see it as a portrait of the actual person, the doge, but it's really Mm. a portrait of the fabric, if you will. Uh, The doge looks kind of mask-like, uh, some people have asked whether this was made from a death mask, uh, which was often oh. done, but evidently uh, this this is not the case because of the time frame. His face is rather waxy and mask-like, but the texture, the brocade fabric of his cloak and the huge golden buttons on his cloak really speak to me as being a real piece of fabric, I guess. A couple more things things. Mm-hmm. Another one of the headline pictures in the show is a 1510 Carpaccio titled or known as The Young Knight. Peter Humphrey in his essay describes it as one of the major pictures of the entire early Renaissance. It's at the Tyson Bornemitza, and of course it's in the show in Washington. There is a lot of spectacular in this picture, including a, a distant city of extraordinary topographical detail. There is in, in the foreground really across, really through the middle ground, a a depiction of the natural world, which is particularly reminiscent of of Durer. And there are, (laughs) across the painting, enough animals, like literally to fill a zoo. 
Right. <laughs> um, and this is all before I've mentioned any of the figures or the horse in the picture. This is all a long way of asking, what makes this such a major picture? What what makes this such a, a, an important early Renaissance scene portrait picture? Well, the all of the above. This is a very early depiction of a full-length male in painting. At this time, portraits of men were not done full length like this. You might have some sort of full length figure on a, on a sculptural monument, but you would not have this in painting. It's a tour de force of painting technique, of texture, of, as you said, all the animals and the plants. And specifically, the armor is just amazing. There's a reflection of the, of the knight's arm on the sort of chest of the armor that you don't even notice until until you see the painting in person things like that that you know he really he didn't necessarily have to do that to prove how good he was but he he does and it's just a a magnificent work uh, the the armor evidently is the top of the armor is is german made and the bottom is italian so that leads people to believe that this might have been a specific suit of armor for a specific person. But many people argue that this really isn't a portrait per se, that it's a, a sort of a commemorative work of art for a young knight that was killed in battle. And at this time, 1510, there were many battles going on. Uh, there was the, the War of the League of Cambrai. There was uh, battles in Padua. So clearly this could be someone's son who unfortunately died mm. in battle. But everywhere you look, like you said, you know, there's a there's all kinds of animals. There's this white ermine at the very bottom with super white, white. Super white, like blindingly white. Blindingly light. And of course, the ermine, the white ermine is a symbol of purity and as is the white lily and there are two of those and again you don't see them until you see the painting but there are toads that are coming out of the pond near the ermine and one of the toads is looking right wow. at us he's really engaging us and so some have seen this as a battle of good over evil which you know would be appropriate in a in a, a posthumous portrait of a of a night. The two dogs have been commented upon. Some see the dogs as the good dog on the left and the bad dog on the right. But again, this dog on the right is taken directly from a drawing by Pisanello. So hmm. how much can you infer there? I'm, I'm not really sure. And you were mentioning trees. This is an oak tree, a barren oak tree, in fact, which suggests that the tree is dead or dying. And the oak tree is a symbol of strength. So it's talking, it's alluding to the nature of the night, you know, strong, but unfortunately dead. So just everywhere you look is something. And one thing to comment on is the squire who's coming out of a stable or coming through a wall in the middle ground. And the squire wears his master's helmet and carries the gauntlets, the gloves that are tucked into his waistband. And you would mm -hmm. think that this is a very particular pattern. This is a gold and black squares, very lively, very specific, that we would be able to find out who in Venice used this pattern at this time. Unfortunately, 
we don't know. There's, you know, nobody jumps out as being the person who could have uh, worn such clothing. So that doesn't help us with, with identifying who this, this knight was. Another part of the painting, which to me is very specific, is the a white piece of paper down by the ermine. It's Latin, and it translates as better dead than dishonored. Malo mori quam podari, which is basically Latin for better death than defilement. And that actually alludes to the ermine. There's a story that evidently this oh. pure white ermine would rather die than than dirty itself by even saving himself and running through mud. So it's this notion of purity. And it's interesting you mentioned Durer because before this painting was purchased by the Tissen Bornemitsa collection, on the back, someone had written Albrecht Durer and they had Albrecht Durer's very distinctive monogram painted on the back. And I think, you know, at that moment, Albrecht Durer for a full length portrait would have been more valuable than a Carpaccio. Yeah. Yeah. So, but that was proven to be false. Of course, the, the inscription on the back was false. And there is on the far right another white piece of paper that has Carpaccio's signature on it. And that too had been painted over. So mm. that if you know they wanted this to be a Durer, not a Carpaccio. Once the painting was purchased, that that part was cleaned and Carpaccio's signature, you know, became was revealed. And there's a Curious, red, very prominent flower. And none of us knew what this flower was. Someone finally figured out it's something called Lords and Ladies. And it's a semi-toxic flower, meaning it's not going to kill you. It's not poisonous, but sort of like poison ivy. If you touch it, it will make you very miserable. So I'm just wondering about that particular flower because it's so prominent. You know, it's Mm. got to be telling us something. And this is, you know, I guess what you would say bigger than life size. So it's really a magnificent portrait. Yeah, it's seven feet tall. Seven so feet, the painting yeah. is seven feet high. Mm-hmm. I want to close by talking about Carpaccio after Carpaccio. What impact does he have on painting, I guess, particularly Venetian painting that comes after him? Well, you know, that's a good question. And not to be simplistic, but he is somewhat forgotten in, I think, in his own, not in his own time, but but later in the century. And, you know, people are looking to Titian, they're looking to Bellini and Giorgione, but not so much to Carpaccio. I think he was reevaluated or recognized in the 19th century as someone worthy of, of our interest. But I, I have a sense that he sort of fell somewhat into obscurity after his death. He had two sons, one of whom was a painter, but even this, this son ended up living in Dalmatia and painting uh, versions of Carpaccio's works in a foreign country. Mm-hmm. So I may be wrong about that, but I think that's one of the reasons Carpaccio hasn't been seen in an exhibition here. This is the first ever exhibition of Carpaccio in North America and only the second exclusive exhibition of Carpaccio since 1963. So he's always been featured in Venetian painting exhibitions, but he's never, you know, had the prime prime spot. Even as Titian occasionally built a composition that referenced a Carpaccio composition, Titian yes. and Tintoretto are all bravura 
brushwork, maximizing what you can do with oil and brush. And I imagine, I'm guessing, that some of Carpaccio's detail and handsiness, if you will, was probably possibly made to feel old fashioned by big booming brushwork and oil paint. Right. About the sort of more modern, if you will, you know, the the way Titian and then certainly Tintoretto paints. Carpaccio is very specific, very, very detailed. And Tintoretto is anything but detailed. So that type of painting, I think, just overshadowed Carpaccio in in later years. Gretchen Hirschauer, thank you very much. Thank you. This has been uh, enjoyable. And thank you for considering our exhibition. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Gordon Parks, Stokely Carmichael, and Black Power, showcasing the renowned photographer's never-before-seen photographs and footage of Black Power leader Stokely Carmichael for Life magazine. Parks had a prolific career as the first Black staff member at Life, and his artistry extended to writing, film, and music. Parks captures the true essence of the African-American experience and the civil rights movement. El Italia calls this presentation, quote, one of the 10 exhibitions not to be missed this fall around the world. On view through January 16th at the MFAH. Learn more at mfah.org slash Gordon Parks. Organized by and on view at the Georgia Museum of Art at the University of Georgia through January 8th, Reckonings and Reconstructions, Southern Photography from the Do Good Fund, is the first large-scale survey of the Columbus, Georgia-based collection highlighting a wide-ranging group of photographers diverse in gender, race, ethnicity, and region. It features 125 photographs by 73 artists, including Gordon Parks, Sheila Pre-Bright, Mark Steinmetz, Michael Stipe, and William Christenberry, and asks questions that identify and complicate conventional ideas of an American South and Southern photography. Visit georgiamuseum.org for more information about Reckonings and Reconstructions or visit AthensGA.com to plan a trip. Welcome back. Next up, Elisa Pichamarn Alexander returns to the program to discuss East of the Pacific, making histories of Asian American art at Stanford University's Cantor Arts Center. The exhibition engages an American art history centered on trans-Pacific migration and discourse rather than the traditional transatlantic address. It features roughly chronological sections that highlight key moments in which Asian Americans have contributed to the art of the United States between the late 19th and 21st centuries. East of the Pacific is one of the three inaugural Asian American art initiative exhibitions now on view at the Cantor. East of the Pacific is up through February 12th. Be sure to have a look at manpodcast.com, where not only do we have images of much of the work discussed in this segment, but a link to the Cantor's Collection site, which has many of Henry Sugimoto's lino cuts, and we'll also have a link to Sarah Kim's Bernice Bing zine, Bingo. Elisa Pitchamarn Alexander, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Oh, I'm so thrilled to be back. Happy New Year. Before we talk about East of the Pacific, could you give us a kind of baseline understanding of how the field of American art has or has not considered Asian American art before you and your Stanford colleague, Marcy Kwan, instigated Stanford's Asian American Art Initiative? 
you know, within the discipline and also within museums, there has been interest in Asian American art, but it kind of comes in, in fits and starts. You know, there's a moment in the 90s um, and then sort of in the 2000s. And now we're coming back around at another moment where there's uh, interest and engagement. But that work has really been limited to a few key folks, um, some of whom I call out in the intro text to East of the Pacific. Uh, and there has a been- A few key scholars rather than a few key artists, you mean? Yes, yes, that's what I mean. Like Margot Machida and Mark Johnson um, and our Stanford colleague, Gordon Chang, um, and other folks like Suzette Min. Uh, but it's, you know, there has been limited sustained engagement, especially with this historical material, which- to a certain extent, I understand and empathize with because it's really hard to access um, and find a lot of these artworks and archives related to, you know, Asian American art before it was called Asian American art, right? So anything pre-1968 um, can be difficult to track. There's been a lot more interest in the contemporary, I will say. I want to start talking about actual artists and art objects in the show with um, the first artist of Japanese descent known to have been working in California, Tamea Kagi. And there's a Kagi in the show. Kagi is kind of a spectral figure, at least was to me when I worked on California. Kagi is in big annual exhibitions in San Francisco by the 1880s, hanging alongside artists, you know, uh, particularly Easterners we know, like Bierstadt and Wyant, Thomas Hill, William Keith, uh, Deacon, Samuel Marsden Brooks, you know, familiar names, especially to Westerners. And then there's Kagi, about whom we know less. But you have a Kagi from 1880 in the show, and it's an amazing picture. Um, what does it show, and how is it an address of a particular place? Yeah, so it's also one of my um, favorites in the collection. It's, I believe, the earliest object that we have made by an artist of Asian descent um, in the Cantor's collection. And it's a beautiful, uh, rather small, kind of unassuming image of uh, a family of quails. Um, the quails are very much in the foreground and they're set in uh, what appears to be a, a California landscape with uh, hills and the sky in the background and it's titled Morning Drink. And so, you know, for the first thing I thought of when I encountered this painting and the one that it is placed right next to the Toshio Aoki um, persimmon still life painting was uh, kind of astonishment in the sense that it would have been really transformative for me as a young art historian, you know, when I was an undergraduate or something like that, to, to encounter a work like this that looks very familiar to scholars of American art in that it is a kind of somewhat conventional painting of, of animals in a landscape. Um, but to understand that this was made by an Asian immigrant um, looking to forge a career in the United States and who was working among uh, artists, white artists peers, about whom we know much more. So it's uh, it too is one of my favorites in the collection. Um, and I'm so glad that you asked about it. California quail would not become the state bird until 1931. So I don't know if we can say that Kagi was uh, addressing state, family, and future in, in the way that might be convenient. Of course, there are, it's like, it's a quail family. It's, it's um, you know, chicks and mom and pop. Um, but the other element of the picture is what we now think of as the classic 
golden grassed oak strewn hills of of the northern two thirds of the state you know well into the 1870s and i suspect by the 1880s too you know wealthy californians were embarrassed by that landscape they thought it uh, paled in comparison to the green lush beauty of of the east people like frederick law Olmsted come west and immediately in their first letters home complain about it um, and here's coggy doing exactly the opposite kind of you know i think you could argue helping to establish what became a landscape of which california was most proud yeah, absolutely. And one that's, you know, really familiar to those of us who live here, which is part of what I, I like about so many works in the show is that um, because it is more specifically focused on uh, West Coast production, a lot of the material, I think, probably feels familiar to Californians or West Coast residents, but it's being done from a perspective that might be a really new to a lot of our visitors, but we see a lot of our beloved California landscape there. I mean, the background of that Kagi painting looks just like um, the this landscape right behind Stanford's campus where we often go hiking. That is that you do often see quails right in that very landscape. So, um, you know, the past is present uh, in a lot of aspects of the show. Yeah, and it makes us wonder, at least makes me wonder, um if we need to revise our understanding of how how and who made what we now think of as classic California landscapes into classic California landscapes. So the best-known painter in the exhibition is Shirley Chura Obata, who has been featured in a number of significant exhibitions in recent years, um, shows that have traveled all over the country. And one of the things I took from your show is that we need to something needs to happen around Obata's watercolors and other works on paper because they're pretty jaw-dropping. What works on paper of his do you have and what, what do they show us and suggest? So we have about 40, a little more than 40 um, in the collection. And we have a wide range, thanks in large part uh, to a gift that was made to the Cantor by the Obata family, the Obata estate, in support of the Asian American Art Initiative. And they put together a lovely gift, including these amazing uh, small postcard size watercolors from 1909 when he was working in the hops fields um, in Sacramento in Northern California. Um, some life studies uh, drawing or life study paintings from his time at Berkeley, teaching at Berkeley. Um, and we have uh, beautiful, beautiful Sumi ink paintings of Yosemite and also of Topaz too. Um, and we have an original uh, watercolor from his World Landscape series, as well as a print, uh, one of his woodblock prints. So we have a wonderful pair where you can look at the original um, watercolor as well as the woodblock side by side. So that's something that I'm really pleased that we were able to do um, in this exhibition. The, the section of, of Obata in the way that I sort of conceived it was a mini survey of his work uh, in the exhibition because the exhibition explores artists and people and collectors and curators who were of a particular significance to Asian American history, especially as it pertains to California. And so the section on Obata represents one of four spotlight sections um, in the exhibition. And it is adjacent to the second section in the show, which is about the East-West Art Society, which he co-founded. Well, speaking of um, those four kind of spotlight sections of the show, one of them uh, features a visual history of Japanese-American internment. 
if that's the right phrase. And of course, Japanese American internment is far too often considered a Western history, history rather than a national history. Uh, any anyone who works on California is uh, familiar uh, with that issue. Historians, especially photography historians, often foreground Dorothea Lange or Ansel Adams in the visual presentation of internment. Your installation um, suggests or insists that a broad recentering of the visual presentation of Japanese American internment around Japanese American authored work is possible um, and and perhaps even art historically more fascinating. Who does your show suggest such a recentering might foreground? Well, I think um, by a lot of the artists represented, you know, Obata, of course, who co-founded an art school in Topaz, um, did a, a great body of work um, beginning in Tanfran and moving into Topaz. We have this amazing suite of Henry Sugimoto Lino cuts that were gifted to us by a survivor of Japanese-American incarceration. He wasn't, in fact, born um, in the Topaz camp. Um, and, you know, other artists like Koho Yamamoto, who was Obata's student in the camps. There was really quite a lot of artistic activity. Uh, Mineo Kubo, of course, um, that was going on during incarceration. And I think that you're right. I think being able to see it, not just from this photographic perspective, but Japanese-American authored uh, images um, of the, their own creative validity in the form of watercolors, in the form of paintings, um, and in the form of works of art made after and in response to incarceration, which that section contains more contemporary representations as well uh, of Japanese-American artists working in response to this moment, as well as these more historic works. And that was one of the most profound and heartbreaking parts of the show to put together because especially living in California you do meet quite a few uh, I mean at least through my work I've met quite a few folks who were born in the camps um, who survived the camps or whose parents did and they recall it you know they recall this moment in time very intensely so it's not it's not an abstract thing living here um, it's it's a very real and present moment and I think being able to put that work on view and to have visitors who are familiar with this history as well be able to come and experience it has been really, um, really powerful, especially having this work donated to us by survivors of incarceration. That aspect, I think, has really, I think, I, not to speak for them, but has been um, a powerful and mutually beneficial experience for both of us, for all of us included. I grew up in California, have been back every year for as long as I can remember, usually multiple times, hit all those museums, have lived in Southern California, and I'd never heard of Sugimoto. I had never seen one in a Bay Area art museum until I saw this show. Um, he was one of the artists, or is one of the artists, that has me rethinking a lot of the narratives I've been presented by uh, Bay Area art museums. Another maybe more specifically art history that your project prompts us to revise is our understanding of the story of abstraction in the United States, the mid-century boom of abstraction. I think art historians have known for a long time that that story has been over New Yorked. <laughs> and a number of pictures in your show offer kind of the latest 
argument for a different understanding. How might we understand Asian Americans have been, as having been engaged with um, a broader American investigation of abstraction in the mid-20th century? Yeah, that section um, features a lot of artists who, once again, were somewhat new to me and throughout the course of working on this collection and working on this project. Uh, but they, as I write about in the section text, faced, you know, multiple forms of bias and discrimination. Not only were they all Asian American, but a lot of the artists in that section were women. Some of them, like Toshiku Takaizu, were working in ceramics, uh, which is, you know, until recently too oft considered a, a craft medium, although I don't consider craft a disparaging term. Um, and they were also on the the wrong coast, <laughs> you know, shall we say, they were on the West Coast. So they were really doing um, their own thing. But a lot of them were also looking at their personal sources, sources that are drawn from their heritage. Um, you look at the Hisako Hibi painting Evening, and you can see that she's working through ideas uh, and aesthetics around Japanese calligraphy that show up in her work and that show up in her later body of work most prominently. Um, and so I, I just really wanted to feature artists who were working with an abstraction and looking at multiple sources. They were, many of them were part of the Bay Area. They, so they were deeply involved in that mid-century conversation around abstraction in the Bay Area, but then the, they were also looking east. They were also thinking about themselves within this history. Um, and so it really asks you to reconfigure your understanding of who was making non-representational work, right? Where they were making it and what was their reasons? What were their reasons for making work that looked like this? Um, and there we have many other examples in the collection as well. So it was actually quite a, it was a hard section for me to put together because there was so much more that I I wanted to include, but I'll just save that for a later date. Speaking of artists who were women and how many women are in the show, I think a lot of people from the Bay Area are familiar with Bernice Bing and not a lot of other people are. And you have um, as great a Bernice Bing as I've ever seen. What is your picture and what should um, we know about Bing? Oh, well, there's so much to to know about Bernice Bing. Um I'll give a shout out to another Bay Area institution that has a great um, solo presentation of her work up right now at the Asian Art Museum. And, I, you know, my colleague Abby Chen acquired those works around the same time that we acquired this one. Um, the one that we have in our collection is called Blue Mountain Number no. 4. It's from 1966, and it's part of her uh, Mayakama series um, that she created while she was working as a caretaker at the Maya Kamas Vineyard up in Napa. Uh, and so it's this monumental uh, abstract painting that, of course, also recalls landscapes. It's called Blue Mountain, of course. Um, it has beautiful uh, blue sky uh, setting in the background. And, it, it, you know, Bing is really one of these artists who I actually did, I did know quite a bit about her before I started my position at the Cantor um, working on Asian American art. But when I first encountered her work, I was in graduate school. I was a reader for um, Jenny Sorkin's Art in California class, my PhD advisor. And she 
pulled up a slide and began uh, talking to us about the life of this queer Chinese American artist who lived in the Bay Area named Bernice Bing, who was born in SF Chinatown, who was part of the Beat Generation, who studied with Diebenkorn and Nathan Oliveira. And I too had that moment where I was like, how am I only learning about this artist just now? Uh, and so I had been somewhat obsessed with Bing ever since that moment. And so when I came here, she was always on my list in terms of artists that we would be interested in for the project. And then also through this work, we uh, Stanford Libraries acquired her archives. So we have Bing, uh, Bingo, as she was um, affectionately known during her life. We have Bingo's archives also at Stanford. Finally, one of the fascinating things uh, about the way you and your colleagues at Stanford are approaching this work, the, the entire AAAI project, is that you use the exhibition introducing wall text, you know, this, this being a place where institutions, you know, typically celebrate themselves and, and, and toot their own horns and, you know, lots of back padding. Um, you use that place on the wall as an opportunity to underscore what remains to be done, um, what remains to be learned. Why did you do that? Why was it important to take that approach? Well, uh, thank you for asking about the intro text. I think every curator appreciates that <laughs> question because we spent so long. Um, and I labored for a long time over it. It's much, it's about 200 words longer than our standard uh, intro text for an exhibition. But I just felt it was, it was necessary to foreground a lot of things. First, all of the amazing work that's been done by previous generations of scholars and curators um, with regard to Asian American art and history. You know, Marcy and I, we are not the first ones to really critically engage with this work. We see that we are deeply indebted to the scholarship of Margot Machida, of Mark Johnson, who is an advisor to the AAAI, as well as Gordon Chang, um, Stanford history professor, who is our wonderful colleague, we really couldn't do any of this work without, for example, Gordon's work on the history of the of Chinese railroad workers, um, for instance. So we wanted to I wanted to really first call that out. You know, we're an academic museum, so I'm inter interested not only in presenting exhibitions, but creating historiographies and acknowledging the production of knowledge and scholarship. And within that same vein, understanding that an exhibition is just an entry point to a question and the show is meant to prompt more questions and more interest and not be the final word. You know, like I mentioned at the beginning, um, this is one perspective. The representation of South and Southeast Asian artists in the show is very minimal to non-existent. So this is another through line that I'll explore in the future. And, you know, also to suggest that this is an exciting moment, that there's so much more to be done, that there are students who are on campus who are hopefully visiting this show, that hopefully they will see things within it that might prompt their interest for further inquiry. And they can do a lot of that work at Stanford in the archives um, that we've helped uh, build um, towards the AAAI goals. So I, I don't like going to an exhibition, walking away and feeling like, Oh, well, that's it. That's sort of the final word. You know, it's all nice and tidy. I prefer things that leave me with um, more avenues uh, to explore. And so that was really what I was trying to do is to start the conversation. Since the AAAI is ongoing, it's an indefinite project. I wanted to signal very clearly that 
this was our offering towards the start of the conversation at the canter and not the end and that folks who are interested should um, be excited that there will be more in the future and but i really wanted to ground our work in uh, historical material. So that was a lot of the conceit of East of the Pacific. It is celebratory in the sense that it shows off our collection, but it also is a really critical engagement with this history that I think might be quite new for a lot of people, which is always really exciting. Uh, a lot of artists, even to scholars and art historians and other curators who are interested in this time period or is interested in California art or Asian American art, I still hear quite frequently that Oh, I had no idea who Wing Kwong Se was, for example, um, before I, you know, saw your show. So that kind of stuff gets me really excited, um, bringing this work out of storage and placing it on view and, you know, offering um, something different, but something really necessary for our audiences. I am one of those people. <laughs> Elisa Pitchamar and Alexander, thanks very much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.